Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Over time and across different genres, Afghanistan has been presented to the world as potential ally, dangerous enemy, gendered space, and mysterious locale. These powerful, if competing, visions seek to make sense of Afghanistan and to render it legible. In Imagining Afghanistan, the History of Politics of Imperial Knowledge, published with Cambridge University Press in 2020, Nivi Manchanda uncovers and critically explores Anglophone practices of knowledge cultivation and representational strategies, and argues that Afghanistan occupies a distinctive place in the imperial imagination, overdetermined and under-theorized, owing largely to the particular history of imperial intervention in the region. Focusing on representations of gender, state, and tribes, Manchanda rehistoricizes and demythologizes the study of Afghanistan through a sustained critique of colonial forms of knowing and demonstrates how the development of per- pervasive tropes in Western conceptions of Afghanistan have enabled Western intervention, invasion, and bombing in the region from the 19th century to the present. In our conversation, we discussed Afghanistan as a discursive regime, the imperial politics of knowledge production, modern myths about Afghanistan, the narratives of the great game and the graveyard of empires, the role of the native informant, the failed state, the war on terror, the representation of the quote-unquote Afghan woman and Afghan masculinities, and a genealogy of the term tribe. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Nivi Manchanda about Imagining Afghanistan, the History and Politics of Imperial Knowledge published with Cambridge University Press in 2020. Welcome, Nivi. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you for having me on this. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to talk to you. I'm excited to talk about this uh, wonderful book, Imagining Afghanistan. Um, before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about our authors. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about um, your training or background, if there was there's moments or mentors that have been influential in, in shaping uh, the things you study or your approaches or anything like that? Yeah, um, there have been loads of moments and loads of mentors. Um, I'm currently um, at <laughs> Queen Mary uh, in, in the University of London, which is a really great department. There are loads of people there who helped me uh, think through challenges and also my students are great and I guess the key moment for me uh, was uh, m- when I was still very much a child um, so it was 2001 and the um, you know 9-11 but also after that both the invasion of Afghanistan and uh, Iraq which I didn't quite understand so I think I was 12 uh, at the time but um, I did feel perceptively a shift around me and I, I think I've been interested in what's happened um since then in the world um and so this i guess is a very long sort of culmination or a very long journey into where i currently am which is still trying to 
interrogate, I guess, uh, American empire in some ways. Yeah. So what were uh, what were some of the key steps in this project coming about for you? What what, what were the questions you were uh, kind of starting to consider and and how did the book start to um, emerge as a as a book project? Yeah, so I suppose um, I started working on uh, the war on terror in uh, as a sort of master's student at the University of Cambridge. And initially, I was really interested in Iraq because that seemed to be the war or the invasion, rather, that was on everybody's mind. It had a lot of um, time and resource and sort of coverage. Uh, And that was the thing that I got really interested in. But the more I read about it, the more I realized that there was a longer war, which seems to have been overshadowed by Iraq. And that was, of course, Afghanistan. So I started veering towards Afghanistan and I got interested in loads of different aspects of Afghanistan, but knowledge production of about Afghanistan. And so I did an MPhil dissertation on sort of nation building and biopolitics. I was interested in Foucault at the time in Afghanistan. And then my PhD proposal sort of went from there, but I became more and more critical and more interested in questions of coloniality and race as I progressed. So uh, there's so many entry points when thinking about Afghanistan and, and listeners uh, are probably coming from different places, uh, you know, historians, people that are interested in politics, perhaps uh, military. Um, so uh, so we can follow along. Uh, can you can you give us some of the key things we need to know about kind of the political and social history of the region uh, to to really get into your project in the book? Yeah. So um I'd like to say that I am not a historian uh, because, you know, even though the book is about, it has lots of history in it. It isn't done with the sort of detail that a historian would do. Um, In terms of Afghanistan at the moment, I suppose, is kind of back um, in the picture now that the Taliban have made loads of advances and have just uh, taken Kunduz as of yesterday, I think. And so um, the story, the, the, the sort of big geopolitical picture is Afghanistan uh, being called or being referred to as the graveyard of empires lots of times. So, you know, in 1978, I suppose in modern history or in contemporary times was the big invasion of uh, uh, by the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And in then, of course, in 2001, uh, the U.S. invasion. But before that, Afghanistan was never fully colonized or never properly colonized. So the Brits... Um, tried a bunch of times. There were three different Afghan wars, um, but it was mostly thought of as something uh, that was important only in relation to India or largely in relation to India. India was, of course, the British Empire's jewel of the crown, and Afghanistan acted almost like a buffer between India and Russia or India and the, so- uh, and, and the Soviet Union for the Brits. Um, since then, I suppose there have been loads of different times in which Afghanistan has captured our uh, attention. So after 1978, I suppose from an American perspective, um, Ronald Reagan uh, very famously talked about the Afghans as as uh, warriors um, and the Mujahids as freedom fighters. And that was the sort of the start of... Um, in some ways, the, the Taliban. And then, of course, the Taliban became very vilified and, um, and, and 
they did harbor Al-Qaeda, which ultimately led to the invasion. But the story is kind of messy and it's kind of murky. So there's these been point like and this is this is something that I kind of tried to trace in my book. There have been points of interest in Afghanistan. Uh, but then Afghanistan has also faded away. So, you know, from a sort of Western or colonial perspective, Afghanistan has only ever been instrumentally interesting. It hasn't been a place that has had loads of effort or resource dedicated to. And that's the thing that I'm interested in about this sort of emergency episteme, as I call it, um, that emerges around critical junctures in the history of Afghanistan, or more precisely, in the history of Western involvement in Afghanistan. Yeah, this is a this is a great setup, because, um, you know, as a reader of the book, I can see all these kind of touchstones that you you flesh out um, more fully. Um, one of the one of the key things you're doing with the book, um, you know, as you kind of already mentioned, you're not you're not uh, writing history of Afghanistan. You're looking at Afghanistan as a discursive regime, uh, as you put it. So can can you help us understand uh, some of the issues that arise around uh, representation um, and then the, the methodological practices you use for for disrupting them? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. So. The book is um, about Afghanistan as a discursive regime, as an object of intervention, as a colonial formation. And so it is overwhelmingly concerned with representations. So one of the representations, and there's like five different sort of thematic chapters, and to tease one out, uh, the representations of Afghan women, which is very... uh, which is a very pervasive sort of trope around Afghan, Afghan women needing saving. Uh, around being sort of um, victims of oppression. And what that does is uh, it kind of completely negates any agency that Afghan women have, and it subjects that to a sort of double whammy of of um, oppression. So you have, of course, local patriarchy and misogynistic practices in Afghanistan, not just the Taliban, but 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 other men. Um, but then what it also does is it also makes them so it makes Afghan women hapless victims of um, colonial or imperial intervention, imperial fantasy. And there's a lot of stuff around Western women and Western NGOs trying to save Afghan women without really understanding what's going on. So Afghan women become sort of even more helpless, even less agential. And the book tries to look at what those representations are doing and how they emerge, rather than to say that this is the truth about Afghan women. So what I'm not trying to do is say Afghan women are liberated. They should not have any attention on them, etc. What I'm trying to do instead is say, why do we present Afghan women as hapless, as just victims? And what... Also, what that says about us in the West, about how that me- how we posit ourselves as feminists, as uh, l- as liberated as women, and it kind of diverts attention from misogynistic, patriarchal, capitalist projects that are ongoing in the West as well. So it's it, the book is looking at Afghanistan, but I think it's in some ways much more about us or the West. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. 
Um, in the first chapter, you look um, at several things, but uh, one I think that really exemplifies is, is this book um, titled Afghanistan 101. Um, could could you tell us uh, a little bit about what this, this book's about and how Afghan culture is deployed um, for, for outsiders? Um, and, and specifically in relation to this book, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you think the effects of, um, you know, quote unquote, authentic voices of native informants might play in, you know, deploying these kind of um, centralized understandings. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so the book um, Afghan uh, one Afghanistan one hundred and one is by Esan and Tazar, um, and the book is really quite a short book, um, and what it does is, and it's quite exemplary in that, it kind of propagates a certain idea of Afghanistan. Uh, And this idea then becomes common sense. Um, It it is very simple. It's very sort of easy to read, although it does sometimes use some sociological text and sociological concepts. It says, this is the way to understand Afghanistan. It's written um, by Entesar, who's at Colombia, uh, but is an Afghan man. And he sets up Afghanistan as a foil to the West and to the US, particularly. And it says, we can't understand Afghanistan as Western outsiders. We have to try to understand Afghanistan in its own terms. And Afghanistan is backwards. The people don't um, uh, respect human rights. They are all misogynistic, they kill cats and, and, and dogs, um, they are they, they are something entirely different. And that their culture and their society um, needs to be understood by using a completely different lens from what we know. And then this book has uh, been picked up by uh, military officers deploying to Afghanistan, by NGOs, um, in fact, I think an NGO in Norway cut its aid uh, after reading the book because it was also all about how corrupt all Afghan society is. So it's a really um, like wide-ranging set of issues that it deals with, but it r- simplifies them, essentializes them, and orientalizes Afghanistan. Uh, and then it becomes, and it is a text that is picked up. And the idea of the native informant is super interesting. So, uh, you know, Gayatri Spivak, um, who wrote about the Subaltern, was perhaps one of the first people to talk about the native informant. And the native informant is a sort of stock figure and a recognizable trope in colonial writing and the colonial archive. Um, In the sort of conventional sense, it is used in ethnographic works to describe uh, native or indigenous people who provide information about non-Western societies to their Western anthropologists or their interlocutors on the ground. Um, But post-colonial theory has used it to talk about people who develop a collaborationist identity. So uh, basically, um, using Homi Baba's concept of mimicry, these native informants uh, are some, some sort of like middle ground between um, the, the the host country, if you like, and the interventionist country, um, and and Entazar 
uh, functions as a quite interesting native informant because he is feeding information about Afghanistan to the West. Uh, but but obviously there's an agenda there, um, and and that agenda is a sort of is 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 um, a part of a colonial strategy to produce these sort of hybrid subjects, these citizens who can help the colonizing mission. And you see that more and more um, in a sort of different way today. Um, I've forgotten the theorist who coined this, but they said something about um, the, the multiracial, multi, like the identity of multiracial whiteness. So basically brown and black people being interpolated into positions that then uphold Western or white superiority. So to take a contemporary example from Britain, you see uh, that the British cabinet, the conservative cabinet, is full of people of color. Um, and, and of course, the, the, the claim of the cabinet is then to say, we're no longer racist. But the 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 way the the way I would look at it, and the way many other people look at it, is to say actually, how are people of color being interpolated, being um, being sort of um, uh, becoming part of a racist project, and that has to do with loads of other things like capitalism. So ca- you can't think of race without capitalism. Perhaps some people would say, but within colonialism, there were loads of these hybrid native informers who functioned because it suited them to uh, function to uphold empire and so um, i wouldn't say entizar is just a trope or a sort of stock native informant but he and certain other people in afghanistan function as a sort of 21st century or 20th century native informant that's quite a long-winded answer but i hope it gets her somewhere no no that was good yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, interesting um, the way you post that, and uh, I I don't know that theorist either, but I like the the kind of uh, new way of thinking about it in our contemporary moment. Um, so another thing you do in the early part of the book is you you uh, tackle some of these uh, common historical metaphors. Um, I can't remember. I think you mentioned the graveyard of empires already. Uh, or perhaps the great game, but you you uh, you look at these narratives. So can can you tell us what these narratives um, of the great game, the graveyard of empires, um, and you also talk about the theme of disease. What do they reveal to us about uh, this in, imperial knowledge production? Yes. Yeah, so I think um, what I'm trying to do with those three things, and so the great game, the graveyard of empire, and disease, is to show how um, tropes and popular representations take on quite a lot of meaning and then become lenses through which we make sense of Afghanistan. Um, and what I try to do is show how the sort of history around those uh, tropes, especially the great game, um, but also the graveyard of empires, is intensely contested. And also, not only is the history contested, but the narratives that emerge both um, historically but especially contemporaneously make Afghanistan a sort of um, a puppet or a pawn in the great game, uh, in the graveyard of empires. It doesn't really, these narratives don't really help us get anywhere. They aren't based on any anthropological, sociological knowledge. 
they're quite thin and they're shorthand. And a lot of the book tries to explain how Afghanistan only functions as shorthand. So there isn't this kind of in-depth engagement. Um, and the, the disease metaphor in particular is, is quite um, telling because I, I saw, like I quoted, I suppose, loads of documents, policy and academic, but, but mostly policy documents, which looked at Afghanistan and spoke about it as being diseased, being without limbs, as a cancer. And I think that also constructs um, or helps construct this kind of formation where you just think of Afghanistan as needing saving as needing intervention, as some sort of thing that is failing, whether that's a failed state, whether it's the women, whether it's children. But there is this hopelessness and haplessness that emerges um, and, again, really strips the country and the people of any um, agency. I will say that, um, that sometimes I felt like I was doing the same thing um, in the sense that I wasn't looking at Afghan agential subjects. That wasn't what the, the book is about. I was also looking at Western knowledge, if only to critique it. So there is that kind of tension in the work. But I, but I think at the time I was really focused on looking at these imperial formations, looking at these discursive sort of creations that have material repercussions. Um, you move on to thinking about Afghanistan as a space, um, whether it's uh, kind of described as peripheral in nature uh, or this idea of the, the failed state that you just mentioned. Um, so can, can you kind of give us an overview of uh, the ways Afghanistan has been classified in these imperialist discourses and, and then how we should understand the connections between, um, you know, space, power and then knowledge production? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose some of those connections um, or some of those like links between Afghanistan as a space have uh, ha- already been intimated at. Um, I think that Afghanistan, like I said, was uh, considered for a long period of time a sort of buffer between, and I'm quoting some colonial document, between two meaningful entities. And the meaningful entities were India on the one hand and Russia on the other. So Afghanistan did not seem to have much meaning. It was just this kind of buffer. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in contemporary writings about Afghanistan, about the Afghan state as either a rogue state or a failing state or a failed state. And the state in the discipline I reluctantly call home, which is international relations, is the sort of most important unit of analysis even now. So, um, the like lack of stateness, if you like, uh, uh, on which Afghanistan rests was really interesting to me. And so this, the chapter on the space and the state looks at how Afghanistan has been construed uh, over time to show how colonialism shaped what was to ultimately become the state, because it was a very colonial enterprise, the state of Afghanistan, the border on on the west was, um, or rather on the east, was delineated by Mortimer Durand. Um, and the back and forth of sort of imperial engagement and retreat 
also led to a sort of very partial and fragmented knowledge about Afghanistan and always and it was always produced as this place in between, as Rory Stewart calls it. Um, the the most sort of recent um, instantiation of this uh, hazy stateness of Afghanistan was uh, in after two thousand and one, when I think it was in two thousand five, when Richard Holbrook, who was Obama's envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan, said that actually this sort of the northwest region of Afghanistan, which borders Pakistan, shouldn't even be considered as part of sovereign Afghanistan. It it isn't sovereign. It was a colonial creation. So why don't we merge uh, that 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 region and call it Afpak, and we think of it as a unified theater of war. And so, even in the twenty first century, um, an American diplomat or American statesperson can just say, "But Afghanistan is not really a state. So why don't we just like mush two places together and call it a new state and say, oh, this is." This is a theater of war. We can drone it. Normal sovereign rules and international legal and the international legal system doesn't apply. And so this kind of hazy, nebulous entity that is the Afghan state or that is projected onto the Afghan state or the Afghan political institutions was what I was interested in in, in the book. Um, you also have a chapter on kind of the notion of tribe and, and focus on, uh, you know, how... Uh, the tribal nature, quote unquote, of Afghanistan uh, in these imperial sources. Um, so, can you can you give us an outline of the the key junctures in the genealogy of this this term tribe uh, that you you provide in the chapter? Yeah, so I suppose that the tribal chapter was the sort of most historical chapter in some ways, um, and it starts with Mount Stuart Elphinstone's history of the kingdom of what he calls an account of the kingdom of Kabul. And it looks at the idea of the tribe as emerging out of his work. And um, many other people have done really excellent work on this, including Ben Hopkins and Martin Bailey. Um, But what Elphinstone does is that he has this mission in 1807, and then he goes and he takes some notes, well, some very copious notes, three three volumes of over a thousand pages um, and he writes down these notes and that becomes sort of the first written history of Afghanistan in the English language and even now people hail it as the best thing that was ever written about Afghanistan which is sort of ironic in and of itself given how it's over 200 years old and that's still the sort of um, the sort of magnum opus on Afghanistan. But the idea of the tribe really emerges out of his work, um, out of Elphinstone's work, that is. And he compares uh, Afghanistan at the time to Scotland. So it's the Scotland of clearances. And he talks about how Afghan tribes are very much like um, clans in Scotland and they're sort of proud and. And most of this is based on hearsay. He talks to some people and he writes this down. And when you read the account, it is very anecdotal, very interesting. And it is very clear that this is his interpretation. It's one man's interpretation. But since then, there has been a sort of, um, this has been the edifice on which this whole other stuff has been has been built. And um, 
especially in the height of sort of colonization in the late uh, ni- late 19th century, early 20th century, um, Elphinstone's work was picked up and it became, the tribe became the key analytic term through which to understand Afghanistan. And there was, you know, there was two different types of tribes. One, one were more, uh, more based on a, with a head at the start and the other one was sort of more democratic if you like and then those kinds of uh, the, that knowledge about these tribes ossified um, and, and was used to engage with Afghanistan in the colonial times and then now in the 21st century Elphinstone's work has been picked up but also other work that was written around the time and the tribe became one of those shorthands with which to understand Afghanistan. And it means everything to everyone, basically. So tribal warriors are conjured up as a way to understand Afghanistan now. And a lot of the the information and the memoirs have been emerging from the 21st century invasion of Afghanistan have been debunked. So there's been loads of work that talks about how the tribes work and how you have to work with the tribes. Uh, But some of that has just been literally just been cooked up out of thin air and um others of it has just been based on this on elphinstone's account and on people who've read elphinstone's account so that that chapter is really trying to say um that what we think of as tribal logics today uh is based on very little research and that an overwhelming focus on on the tribe without understanding the tribe. And the tribe itself is a sort of racialized word, a racialized concept. Most anthropologists have long since discarded it. Um, but political science still really holds on to it. Uh, it, it. The tribe doesn't make sense. There's loads of different groups of people, loads of different, like, you know, you can talk about tribal organization in certain moments, but to use that as a sort of... Uh, as the only way to understand Afghanistan, which actually is based on erroneous or anecdotal historical research, is actually, to me, frankly, stupefying. And I think that this chapter really tries to trace some of that history and some of the like, some of the 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 blanks and the um, the silences and erasures that have constituted Afghanistan as a land of tribal warlords. Um, the latter half of the book, the two vectors you, you focus in on are, uh, are men and women or um, kind of how masculinity and, and femininity is constructed within these uh, kind of imperial and then uh, I think you call them quasi-colonial, uh, more modern um, sources as well. But uh, so the discourses around the status of women uh, in Afghanistan, can, can you tell us who, who are Afghan women according to these sources? Um, what, what, what are some of the dominant tropes that emerge? And um, how, does, how does the representation of uh, women compare to some of these uh, previous ways of othering we saw in, in the, other, the earlier part of your book? Because there are some uh, divergences. Yeah. Um... So I think the chapter on the women is a quite psychoanalytical. It sort of moves away from some of the historical sources to look at notions of desire, um, 
and lack, uh, but also it is also very much um, a story of similarity with other colonial spaces. So like you said, I talk about Afghanistan as a quasi-colonial venture, um, and I talk about how it's different in a lot of the times from, say, India. Um, But in this chapter, I look at the sort of age-old story of saving brown and more specifically Muslim women uh, in order to parse the sort of Orientalist dynamics, but also the ideological and affective uh, dimensions to this trope of saving saving brown women. One of the things that emerges out of this chapter is definitely an obsession with the veil and the burqa. And there's an instant, there's a, there's a story or an island wrote about Laura Bush talking about how, you know, the ve- as soon as somebody puts on the veil or the burqa, it basically makes them invisible. It makes them not a person. There's loads of stuff in like left wing um, journalism emerging out of the Guardian in, in Britain about how, uh, how, you know, Afghan women who have the, who are covered in billowing clouds of blue are basically like insects um, and, and just completely invisibilized or invisible. And so this, this um, chapter really looks at how this, the creation of this other woman uh, is at once really threatening um, because it's so different from us or it's, it is interpreted as so different from us, but also really full of like desire and, and especially um, trying to control um, what what this woman in a burqa, what this woman in a veil is about, and so I I sort of look at um, how Afghan women are portrayed as victims of gross injustice out of a male dominated misogynistic patriarchal hyper masculine society, um, but also how that kind of completely um, rides roughshod over how the West has been complicit in creating that and also in how rescuing Afghan women is, is a, a failed enterprise and B actually has nothing to do with Afghan women and all about how we can feel better ourselves. And this is the chapter in which sort of the fear of Islam and Islamophobia and the anti-Muslim like Muslim racism really comes to the fore albeit in different kind of ways because it's all about saving these women so it's not like oh islam is the enemy that must be defeated in very obvious ways but in but in how like the de-islamization of women is needed how change in mindset is needed how women can only become women and people if they're no longer veiled and i'm not trying to say that um you know that i endorse or uh, or I am in any position to comment about whether women in Afghanistan or elsewhere should be veiled or not. That is not, these are women who can make their own decisions. And also if they can't make their own decisions, that is a separate conversation to be had. This That's not the position I am trying to enter here. All I'm saying is that this obsession with the veil says a lot, once again, about us and about Western observers and Western interlocutors. Um, so in the in the next chapter, you turn to uh, discourses on Afghan masculinities. So um, how how are men represented in in your sources? You know, often very similar sources. Um, and how how do the prospects for Afghan 
men compared to those of the constructed women to be saved? Can, can they also be saved according to these sources? No, I think uh, Afghan men are definitely ruled as beyond the pale. So very contradictory as is always the case and filled with sort of colonial anxiety, uh, representations of Afga- Afghan men pervade. And one of them is the Afghan men, the man as a queer sort of sol- sodomizer. So there's all sorts of writings about how Afghan men wear makeup or walk in certain ways, are dressed colorfully, hold each other's hands, and also how they are probably homosexuals, although the identity of the homosexual is denied them because homosexuality is a sort of Western and liberated concept. They are not homosexual men. They don't have that identity, but they perform sort of barbaric but homosexual acts. And so they're queer sodomizers, um, Afghan men. And 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 it, Afghan masculinity emerges as such a threat in this whole in this chapter and in almost all the stuff I've read, um, and it's all about this sort of moral panic. Uh, so there's the moral panic around the veil, uh, but there's also um, as sort of juxtaposed against that moral panic is this stuff around these Afghan men who are queer, who are pederasts, who are these black and brown sort of masculinities that need to be quashed. So they can't be saved. They need to really be eradicated. That's the sort of the freakish, effeminate, monstrous um, masculinity, as Jasbir Puar and Amit Rai call it, um, is what is associated with most males in Afghanistan. And then the chapter also looks a little bit at Hamid Karzai, uh, because he was... um, so because he was of course for a long time um and he hamid karzai emerges as a really interesting actor uh because he becomes he goes from like this suave western man um that the west loves to also quite a queer strange pathologically um pathologic pathological uh man are towards the end um and and that kind of, the the sort of shifts and the anxieties and the representation around Hamid Karzai are quite interesting as well um so the chapter really tries to show um the 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 multitude so it shows like there isn't some sort of unvarying fixity to the representations of Afghan men or to any representations it just shows different moments and different junctures and different sorts of representation, but they're all within a larger schema of anxiety, of otherness, of monstrosity. Um, and, and it is really quite remarkable. So, it, you know, there's lots of stuff around how um, if Afghan men hug each other, they're gay, but they're not properly gay. And there's just lots of tortuous thinking and effort gone into construing Afghan men by military personnel in the in sort of the, the lots of media sources and policy reports as just very strange uh, deviant creatures. Yeah, um, the the book overall uh, paints a really interesting lands, landscape, and uh, I, there's there's tons of detail. Of course, we didn't get to cover. Um, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts you you want to discuss or um, 
perhaps what you want readers to come away with overall? Um, I mean, I think I want readers to engage, I suppose, with uh, not just the book, but with Afghanistan. And I'm, I suppose that is one of the one of the reasons I wrote it. But but it's also about uh, representation, knowledge production, and how we think of the world and how we um, put certain people and places and boxes and labels and then deem them inferior or subjugated. And I just I think it's just about looking at uh, places with and people with perhaps a little bit more a little bit more interest and a little bit more open mindedness than Afghanistan has uh, has been subject to. I suppose that's that's really it. Yeah. Um, well, I for one have not been able to do a lot in the past year or so uh, in terms of being academically productive. But I'm wondering if uh, you have things you're working on or or things coming out that uh, that we could hear about. Yeah, there, I mean, I haven't been very productive at all. Um, and having just spent all this time talking about how important Afghanistan is, I'm going to say, oh, my project, my next project has nothing to do with Afghanistan. So, um, yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> then the I'm trying to work on a, on a sort of book project, I hope, um, that looks at the question of borders and bordering um, and and the sort of imaginative and affective dimensions of borders, uh, national borders, but also borders between sexes, between religions, between genders. And it and it's actually an intellectual history of four different thinkers who are working around the same time um, and only obliquely interested in the question of borders. But I want to try and pass what they say um, about borders and think about how we can more creatively um, approach this question of borders which seems to be really really prevalent at the moment and uh, the thinkers are Gloria Anzaldúa who who many people might have heard of um, who's a really prominent thinker of uh, of the border in the US Mexico sort of area in the in the mid 20th century so Gloria Anzaldúa is the first one and then there's uh, Jean Genet who's a French liter- literary and lit- literary scholar and playwright uh, also working around the same time, and then Huey Newton, who is, of course, uh, of the Black Panther Party, um, also working at the same time, and then Temsula Ao, who's less well-known. She's an indigenous or an Adivasi thinker from the northeast of India. And they're all sort of working some some more overtly, Anzal Dua, for instance, on the question of the border, especially in her book, The Border or Borderlands. But um, the others, too, are all tackling what bordering might mean. Um, again, like Genet, the he is is interested in the borders between sexualities and sexes and also race. Uh, Huey Newton as well is very interested in the question of race, but also capitalism, but also the nation state as a bordered entity. And it's, it's a pretty vast and sprawling and I think ambitious project at the moment, but um, I'm hoping it comes together in the next year or so. That's great. It sounds like a really interesting project, and uh, I wish you wish you luck. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Um, well, thanks again for making time to talk about this book, and uh, I hope listeners will will pick it up and check it out. Thank you so much for having me.
That was my conversation with Nivi Manchanda about Imagining Afghanistan, the History and Politics of Imperial Knowledge, published with Cambridge University Press in 2020. And thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.